Welcome to Emron's podcast, episode number 58. This is your host, Suman Silwal. I think at the end of the day, doing things that benefit others are, is truly the thing that makes us happy. Visit emrons.coms to listen to our previous podcast shows, links to our social media channels, and more. I'd like to welcome Golden Harper to Emron's podcast. Golden is the founder of Ultra Shoes Running Shoes and the Moment that going on right now. Uh, Golden, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. So where are you located at, at, at this time? I know you move around the country. We had a, had a hard time to catch you. So finally, we're sitting down. So You know, I just got home from two weeks on the road, finally sleeping in my own bed. And I'm, I'm uh, sitting in my home office, gazing out the window at the mountains. So all is well. <laughs> it's, it's always good to be home and sleep. Indeed. How's your travel schedule like? You you travel pretty wide now or? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I, I try to stick to uh, building the brand in America and, uh, you know, doing my clinics and presentations and, you know, speeches and stuff, you know, kind of on a week off a week. So I, I ideally speaking, I'll, I'll travel a week and then be home a week and then, uh, you know, travel the next week and, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how it goes. So I'm home this week and I'll be heading to Boston next week. Pretty exciting. Before before we uh, get deep on our uh, conversation about Ultra and founding the Ultra Series um, and everything else, uh, let's just talk about uh, your running running background. You have some world record and uh, some of the amazing running you have done very early stage. Let's talk about that. Okay, sounds good. What do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about uh, how did you start running? Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, my parents uh, read these studies that said that children will be more intelligent the longer they um, crawl. And so my parents never let me walk. They would always push me down as soon as I stood up. Um, and they tried to make me crawl. And, and one day they set me outside the car. And I was pretty old. For, you know, I should have been walking at this point. And apparently there were some kids, you know, in a playground really close playing, having a great time. And I apparently just took off running uh, towards these kids. So the, the legend is that I ran before I walked. <laughs> and uh, my parents were race directors when I was um, young. They had just gotten into running. And they, they put on a ton of races and they had kids races. So from, you know, age two, I was uh, competing, basically. I'd run these, you know, little kids races, if you will. And uh, then ran the World Youth Championships as an eight-year-old and managed to win that, which was really cool. And that just kind of sparked my, you know, competitiveness a bit. And I really wanted to run uh, a marathon when I was nine. And because that's, you know, what my parents did, kind of the capstone of every year was running the St. George Marathon. That was like all the focus of training and um my it's it's really funny because my neighbors ran too um so along this way you know i was the kid who showed up to kindergarten first day of school and was like so uh where do you run you know and (laughs) kids are like you are not cool (laughs) you know running was way less cool back then and uh you know to me i just thought that's what people did i thought people ran and so that was just it's such an integrated part of my life from a young age. Um, and my family opened, uh, we started a running store when I was nine years old as well. And I really wanted to run a marathon that year. And uh, my parents wouldn't let me. They just said, it's too far. It's too long. You can't do that. And uh, a a pretty, you know, momentous thing happened. I didn't get to run the marathon that year, but they gave the, the big performance of the day trophy, which was like a six foot tall trophy, which is just a ginormous trophy. They gave it to the youngest runner of the race that year, who was 12 years old and ran a really respectable four and a half hour marathon. You know, I was just irate with my parents. You know, if you would have <laughs> let me run... 
I would have got that huge trophy. It's mm. all your fault. I could have had a trophy twice as tall as me, you know, like <laughs> just so angry with my parents. And they were they were like, OK, fine. We're sorry. Next year, you know, you can, you can run the marathon if you prove yourself. So you need to go. And they had like, you know, four or five things I had to do, one of which was running rim to rim in the Grand Canyon, which if you or anyone listening has ever done this, you know that running rim to rim in the Grand Canyon is harder than a marathon. <laughs> and <laughs> so I had a few of those things uh, that they said I had to do in order to prove that I could actually run the marathon. And uh, I did. You know, and so I came back that that first year as a ten year old and and ran my first marathon and ran uh, three hours and eight minutes as a ten year old and wow. it just kind of kind of took off from there basically. So tell me about uh, this running a marathon in that young age. Is it is it that too early? I mean, for you probably is not, but for most average people, it's really young, correct? Yeah, I would never encourage someone to do it, but I wouldn't hold them back either. I guess for me, it was completely motivated by me and not by my parents. You know, it was something I wanted to do. It was all my own personal motivation. If I wanted to sleep in in the morning and not go for a run, my parents weren't going to wake me up and tell me to go run. You know, if I went running, it's because I wanted to go running. If I trained for the marathon, it's because I wanted to train for the marathon. And it, it wasn't because my parents, you know, were encouraging me or, or wanting me to. So, and I think that's really the important distinction that people need to make, especially with running as a youth. And um, kid has to be the motivator. And the I think it's, it's just really dangerous if the parents parents are sitting there pushing the kid, you know. So to me that's that's the big important distinction and and I think because I was motivated for me, that's what allowed me to go on as an 11-year-old and 12-year-old and so on and, and run, you know, just some things that I look back on and just think are ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I talked to the the youngest uh, Western State winner, uh, Andrew Miller, one of my podcast guests, and uh, uh, he talks about very. Listen to you, it's a sound of very similar environment that you guys grew up, where the whole family's running, you kind of pushed into runnings. That's a great story for young people who wanted to run, you know, take the challenge and uh, run road, trail, whatever. So that's an excellent story. So as you moved on. Uh, you ran the high school, college. Uh, how, how, how did that work for you? Um, you know, it was funny. You know, I kept running the marathon until I was 13. And um, I was about as fast as the Olympic trials qualifying woman. And so they, they didn't really, it's bad for your ego when a three foot tall, redheaded, sawed off run, runs by you and you're an Olympic trials qualifier. And there's just a lot of, honestly, a lot of negativity. You know, people are really unhappy with me running. And I, I ran 245 uh, as age tw at age 12, which was a world best um, that still stands as far as I know. And, um, you know, doing this and, and being at this kind of elite level, um, people were like, you know, I heard so much of, you know, things like this, like, you're going to ruin your knees. Um, you're you're going to stunt your growth for sure. You're ruining your growth plates. Um, and then, you know, you're making yourself slow by running marathons. Uh, you'll never be able to run successfully in, in high school or college um, at, you know, the shorter race distances they have there. And, you know, tons of other stuff, too. But those are the, the main negative things that I heard constantly. And, you know, you hear things enough, you kind of start to believe them a little bit. And so I had a really rough transition from... Uh, from running marathons to running in high school. I didn't run as a freshman because I was running a marathon that year. And so I decided to run cross country as a sophomore. And uh, I ended up 45th at state, which is really good. Um, anybody who's, you know, 45th at state has put a lot of work in and, and you know, they've really gone hard, you know. And But when you've been best in the world, um, 
it's a little bit of a letdown, you know, and I started, you know, it's just uh, the whole season. I just kept hearing all these voices in my head, you know, all these people saying, because you're running marathons, you, you'll stunt your growth and run your knees and, and be slow and not ever get a scholarship in college. And, and, you know, you just hear all that negativity. And, and I was really short. I was really small. And so, you know, it's like some of this stuff seems kind of true, you know, and I think I think all of us as, as runners, we have these negative voices in our head and we we have to find a way to overcome them and and not listen to them, you know, and find a way to push them out and replace them with positive thoughts. And so I sat down with my dad after state that year and my dad has coached, uh, you know, over 25 Olympic trials qualifiers uh, in the marathon. And so we sat down and put a plan together starting right then, you know, a day before or a year before state and, you know, planned out how we were going to win state the next year. And, uh, you know, we executed that plan and, and replaced the negative thinking with positive. And I, I happened to grow that next summer, which was nice. <laughs> um, and I was able to win state as a junior and, you know, all because, you know, really followed a plan to a T and, and really put a plan in place to, to beat the negative thoughts and, and whatnot. And I think that that's important for all of us as runners is, is having a plan and, and being realistic. You know, I like to tell people to plan three weeks of injury time into every season. You know, you, you might step off a curb wrong or, or slip on a newspaper or get the flu or whatever. Inevitably, something's probably going to happen. So plan for negative things to happen and then they don't bog you down at all when they do. And then if they don't, you're like that much farther ahead. It's awesome, you know. Mm-hmm. So so we did this and... Um, and then I went on to the next year, went to Foot Locker Finals, had to uh, beat a guy named Ryan Hall to get there. And, uh, you know, I I lost to Alan Webb by half a second and and a whole group of us all, all broke the previous national record for 5K cross country, um, which was really cool to be a uh, part of a group of guys that uh, did that. And, and Dathan Ritzenhain was, uh, of course, the one who just annihilated the, the record and won that year. So, so that's kind of my journey through high school. And then, uh, you know, went on and uh, had a, a, a pretty decent college career too. And, and then right after college, uh, was doing some uh, just training for some long distance hiking stuff I was doing. I thought it'd be pretty good ultra training. So uh, about 10 years ago, right after graduating college, I, I decided to run my first ultra, which was really fun too. And I uh, had a lot of success there as well. So that's uh, that's that's my running history in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a great running history, especially still holding the war record. So, so as we move on, um, from our first topic, let's talk about your uh, uh, founding of um, Ultra. I have been introduced to your shoes uh, very recently, the last few months. I know my friends were wearing it. Uh, it always looked kind of funny and different. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I never um, was introduced to it. But recently I did and uh, kind of liking it because I have uh, run four marathon, pace two, race two. Um, I'm enjoying it. Um, so let's talk about um, founding of the um, Ultra, Ultra Shoes and Ultra Movement. So. Um, you know, uh, I don't know how detailed you want me to go or, or how far back you want to go because we can we can get real deep or we can we can keep it pretty surface level <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about that the time when you when you are using the toaster ovens and try to build okay. the shoes and, and you know go enough deep that uh, so we can I can ask for the question as well okay so I um I studied running technique and running injuries um, in college and, uh, you know, even my English papers and stuff, I would write on on those topics. And the, the biggest thing that really stuck out to me is that, you know, as someone who had grown up in my own family's running store, is basically everything that I had been taught to, to teach people at a running store had no scientific backing. 
And, you know, we can delve into some of these topics later, like cushioning and pronation and running surfaces and, and foot problems and stuff. But it was really frustrating to think that like, oh, everything that, you know, we've been taught to tell people really isn't, you know, based in science. It's kind of just propaganda. And um, I finished college and was managing the store and um, we went out to a retailer and there were these things called Vibram Five Fingers, which, you know, we, we know about now. And I tried a pair and thought, well, that'd be pretty good for, um, you know, teaching, uh, teaching running technique and also for strengthening the feet. And so we, we told them like, we wanted to order them and they were like, Oh, what's your store? And we're like, Oh, runner's corner. And they were like, who are you going to sell them to? And we're like, Oh, runners, you know, we're just as a training tool for, you know, teaching running technique and strengthening the feet using, you know, short distances a couple times a week. And, and they were like, Oh no, 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 no. These are for, you know, boat shoes and, and hiking and stuff. We didn't build them for running, but so they ended up letting us order them though. And we got them into the store and, and and about the same time, uh, high-speed video came available, which lets you see slow motion really clearly. And so we started filming our customers because we wanted to know what kind of effect um, these these five-finger um, shoes were having. And we found that, uh, you know, people ran really similar to the way they would run without a shoe on. And we also found that when we watched people run in like, uh, you know, spikes or uh, cross-country flats, at least the really, you know, really light nothing there once uh they didn't tend to change too much and uh at all and so then we started filming our customers in the traditional best-selling running shoes that we were selling in the store and we saw dramatic change and um you know go back a little farther my dad he blew his knee out playing football and right after he was actually drafted to play pro baseball for the angels and um, he was told he'd never walk normal again and that he'd never run again. And um, he was actually challenged, you know, uh, a year or so later by a friend to, to run the Las Vegas Marathon who told him he wasn't a real man if he didn't do it. And so uh, my dad painfully, you know, came through about six hours in this first marathon. And he thought there's, you know, the doctor's right. I can't run. I, 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 can, I can't even walk normal. I've got no cartilage in my knee. Um, and uh, but there's got to be a better way than this. And uh, eventually he he saw some Kenyans running, some Africans running, and and uh, he thought to himself, like, wow, those those guys look a lot different than the rest of us out here. They look like they float, and that doesn't look like that hurts their knees. And so he taught himself to imitate African runners, um, you know, compact arms, proud posture, you know, uh, quick quick strides, and um, you know, this low impact bent knee landing. And um, sooner or later, you know, less than ten years down the road, he he wins the St. George Marathon in in two hours and twenty two minutes. Uh, I, I was two years old at the time and 222 for a guy with no cartilage is, is pretty impressive so that is can, very impressive you can imagine he's really passionate about um using running technique to uh, protect people's bodies and um, so when people would come in the store we would generally teach people a quick lesson on how to protect their body when they run um, and just kind of go a little bit in depth on those four um points i just mentioned and so um as we're sitting here watching this you know video in slow motion um you know we watch somebody run uh without shoes on watch them run in spikes watch them run in five fingers and we watch them run in you know the uh you know a6 gt2000s or whatever you know best-selling shoe they happen to be wearing i don't remember exactly and and my dad's like man i don't know if we're really helping people here it's like you know i teach people a quick lesson on how to protect their bodies when they run but then i sell them a pair of shoes that undoes everything I've taught them every single time they go running. Um, and that was a really frustrating moment for us because as, as you watch uh, people run in slow motion, you know, when people uh, run in their natural way, they, 
they tend to keep their foot fairly parallel with the ground and they, they land underneath a bent knee and, and it allows their leg to bend and be used as a shock absorber and, and you know, it, it looks fairly natural. And as soon as we, you know, we're watching people do that and then we watch people in shoes and what you see typical with uh, traditional running shoes is as the foot swings out in front of the body, the, the heel tends to drop, the toes go up and then the heel comes in and, and contacts the ground out in front of the body instead of underneath the knee. And, um, you know, a, a, there's plenty of research out there showing that not only does your body come to a dead stop for a couple milliseconds when this happens, um, but your initial impact with the ground is three to five times higher, um, which is a really big number. We're not talking about 80 to 90 percent higher. We're talking about 300 to 500 percent higher. You know, as we look at the data, about 80 percent of runners are doing that now um, versus before we had traditional running shoes um, or, or foam in running shoes. Basically, no runners were doing it. And so we're in this place where, um, you know, we're watching people run and, and we're feeling like the, the shoes we're selling people are really doing our customers a disservice. And, um, you know, going without cushioning was not really an option. Uh, I was training for a rocky 50-mile race at the time. I actually hadn't even run my first 50-mile uh, race. And um, just training for that. And so, you know, protection is good, right? Definitely. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I thought, you know, running a rocky 50-mile race in five fingers just isn't really an option for me if, if I'd like to go fast. And um, likewise, everybody running around man-made surfaces that, you know, we weren't selling five fingers to people for anybody running on, you know, man-made surfaces. It's more for just like a mile or two on the grass and um so I'm looking at the video and I just have this theory is, is you see the foot swing out in front of the body, you see the heel drop and you see, you see the toes come up and then you, you see the foot land out in front of the body. And I thought, well, what if we just, you know, we start looking at shoes and lo and behold, you know, every running shoe, it's a standard formula that if a running shoe has, you know, 12 millimeters of cushioning in the front, it's going to have 24 in the back. If it's 13 mm. in the front, it's 26 in the back. If it's 10 in the front, it's 20 in the back. The, the formula that the factories even used to build the shoes was based on this, you know, whatever you had in the front, we just double it and that's what the back is. And likewise, um, you know, shoes uh, tend to have heel counters and, and uh, all this quote-unquote technology in the back of the shoe that's a lot heavier than the front half of the shoe. And so, you know, at the time, we, we would weigh a shoe and, and not only was the shoe, you know, thicker in the heel, the shoe was a lot heavier in the heel. So, the back half of the shoe is heavier. And so, I had this theory that because the shoe is heavier, when the foot swings out in front of the body, that causes the heel to drop. And then because it's thicker, um, it, it would cause the foot to catch the ground earlier than it otherwise would. And so I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home and uh, try and make a pair of shoes that are still have plenty of cushioning and support to them, but uh, but don't have the the back half of the shoe that's really heavy. And so I selected a pair of shoes that didn't really have a heel counter, didn't have any technology in the heel and, and uh, you know, wasn't going to be heel heavy. And then I went home and uh, my dad was always modifying shoes. So it was uh, a pretty normal thing to, to, you know, be doing this. And I told my dad what I was doing. I was like, uh, you know, I'm, I want to pull the, the rubber out and the foam out and see if we can put a, a flat piece of foam in a, a level balanced, you know, weight balanced piece and glue the rubber back on and see what happens. And he's like, oh, great. You know, just uh, pop them in the toaster oven, 275, wait till the glue bubbles. And uh, I, of course, my mom's like rolling her eyes like, oh, no, not again. The house is going <laughs> to smell like, you know, burnt rubber and foam. And <laughs> um, we did this and I, I threw these shoes in, left them in a little long, melted the laces and, uh, but was able to get them out, pull the rubber off and uh, pull the midsole foam out and uh, put put some weight balance foam back in and, and glue the rubber back on and went for a run. And from there, we just 
did a bunch of testing. So uh, it, it, it worked pretty well. And Golden, and that's the start of um, your journey to the ultra, ultra running shoes. Uh, not only your shoes is zero drop um, uh, shoes. That's that's how you, you market it, correct? Uh, also, the front uh, front of your shoes is a little different than most of the other shoes that I that I have uh, used or, or I have it right now or I used them. Um, let's talk about, uh, first talk about the zero drop. Uh, what does that mean? And also... Um, was a design of the uh, design of the toe 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 boxes. I guess that's what you call. Let's talk about that a little bit. Okay, so um, after the toaster oven shoes, um, you know those looked really good on video. We put them on slow mo, and, and people ran in those you know shoes similar to barefoot, and uh, were able to run you know pretty naturally, and so uh, land low impact, and and so I decided to test them out on my staff, and so I, I uh, took a pair of shoes into um, some shoes into the shoemaker down the street and I explained that I wanted him to make the cushion be the same from the heel to the forefoot and I talked about how every running shoe you know is a lot thicker in the heel so that the the cushion drops from the heel down to the forefoot there's this you know this slope and um, as he was measuring a, a pair of shoes out one day he would basically cut in um, to the end of the drop up, up basically to the forefoot and then he would sand out um, the heel elevation and he would measure it with uh, you know with these millimeter rulers and and make sure that we got it exactly level and he's sitting there measuring he's like yeah it looks like this pair is still you know dropping two millimeters because I, again i would talk about how the, how the heel dropped to the forefoot i'm like okay get that two millimeters out of there we'll get it level and, and we'll call it good you know he sands some more out and he's like uh looking at it again he's like okay it looks like it's dropping zero millimeters and i was like ah robert you're a genius like you finally gave us a, <laughs> something to call these shoes we'll call them zero drop shoes that's way better than hacked up modified shoes you know and uh so that's where the term zero drop came from. And it's it's kind of ironic because it's a term to describe the cushioning of the shoe, that the cushioning no longer drops from the heel to the forefoot. And of course, the irony is that when um, uh, New Balance and, and Merrill and some of these other brands came out with minimalist shoes um, later that were zero drop, they didn't have any cushioning. And so I always thought that was ironic that uh, they really didn't even understand uh, the term zero drop because they were using shoes that had no cushioning rather than uh, shoes that were were cushioned and we were taking the drop out of the cushioning. So, so that's where the term zero drop came from. And um, we actually had him make uh, pairs for about all 25 of our staff at our store. And, and uh, you know, 24 of the 25 thought, you know, the shoes were great and loved them. We thought that was a good percentage. And, and then, uh, you know, we ended up somehow... Uh, getting him on a customer because uh, he was one of these uh, hopeless customers that had tried everything, you know, most cushion shoe, most supportive shoe, orthotics, you know, everything. And his knee still hurt. And he kind of like begged to try one of these shoes. So we let him, we let him take one. And, um, Next thing we know, you know, his his buddy comes in a couple of weeks later and is like, "All right, who who sold my my friend a pair of hacked up shoes?" And it's like, "Oh <laughs> crap," you know. And I'm like thinking we're in big trouble. And he's like, "No, I, I know I've known him for a long time, and his knee always hurts, and it's not as bad. So uh, so so get me get me one of those." And uh, make a long story short, we sold a thousand pair of uh, modified zero drop shoes um, that first year. That we were basically, you know. Um, taking to the shoemaker and having him um, modify, you know, the best-selling shoes in our store. And uh, we sent out surveys 
uh, to all of our customers that bought them and, and we paid them in gift certificates to bring these surveys back and, and tell us, you know, if their foot strike changed, uh, you know, if what muscles were being used more or less, where they got sore differently, um, what hurt more, what hurt less, what injuries you know, went away or got better, what injuries got worse, et cetera. And we found that, um, you know, overwhelmingly, uh, we had immense success um, with plantar fascia issues, uh, shin splints, runner's knee, um, IT band issues, and lower back pain. Those were the things we saw the biggest, strongest positive correlation with, um, which is really cool to see that it, it was, you know, not only a good theory, but in practice, you know, a year of surveys showed that, you know, overwhelmingly, it was really helpful with these things. Um, so, so that's kind of where we, uh, you know, took things, uh, from there and that's, that's where the term zero drop came from. And, and it kind of, we didn't really, you know, openly advertise these shoes so much. So it kind of became like fight club where people would come into the store and they're like, Oh, I want to try the zero drop shoes. And we were like, well, uh, nobody makes zero drop shoes. And they're like, Oh, but we know you guys make them. They're in the back, back there. You know, it's like, okay, what's the password? You know? Um, so that's, that's where that term came from. And, um, you know, in regards to the foot shaped toe box that you were asking about. Um, so one thing we'll always say is they're not wide, they're foot shaped. There's a really important distinction. And I, and I wish we could show images on a podcast, but I, I typically show an image of a, a 4E Brooks Adrenaline and a, a 2E wide um, Asics GT2000 next to one of our shoes in, um, you know, a paradigm shoe of ours. And uh, you can clearly see that the the width is, of our shoe is narrower um, throughout the entire shoe up until we get up into the toe area. And then even this, you know, 4E wide Brooks Adrenaline just, you know, dives back in on both sides and is shaped like a torpedo um, up in the toes, which is is where people truly need the width. Um, at least, you know, eight out of 10 people, that's that's where their width is lacking. And um, so what happened, uh, the, the initial genesis for this was um, I... Uh, for about 10 years before we ever got to the toaster oven side of things, whenever anybody had a foot problem, my dad would actually sell them their shoes too big um, because of some experiences he had had. And then he would skip the laces on the bottom half of their shoe so they couldn't be tightened. Um, and so their toes would just kind of be hanging out in space. And it was so successful for helping our customers that had foot pain that you could show up to a local 5K and about half of people had their, uh, their laces skipped at the bottom half of their shoe. Um, so we'd been basically testing this for 10 years and, and knew it was really helpful for your typical, you know, sesamoiditis, metatarsalgia, plantar fascia issues, uh, neuromas, and, and, and bunion pain. And um, so um, that's kind of where the genesis of the foot shaped toe box is. And then as, as we got into development with the shoes, um, um, and I looked at um, my research both from college and, and then some post college research, we found out that in uh, America, 73% of people report foot pain. Uh, every year. And when we go to countries where people don't wear shoes or don't wear modern footwear, so barefoot or primitive sandals, uh, only 3%. And that's us begging them to tell us about their problems. And so, um, you know, if you really look at the data, it's pretty simple. Uh, chronic foot conditions are caused by shoes, period, you know, almost exclusively. Um, and and specifically, you know, I found all, all these podiatrists that really blamed the elevated heel in the shoes, but m more specifically, the, um, the, the shape of shoes. And they just said there's a there's a foot shoe conflict. Shoes are shaped relatively triangularly. They they're shaped like torpedoes. Um, and feet are more square. And you know in preschool we're taught not to put the square shape inside the triangular. Uh, 
you know, whole, right? And uh, so, you know, you just, you just, it doesn't work to put the square shape in the triangle hole. And yet, um, we put our relatively square shaped feet in shoes that are shaped more triangularly every day. And, and we wonder why our feet hurt. And it's this kind of thing that's, you know, akin to Chinese foot binding. We, we jokingly, you know, call it American foot binding, uh, where people's feet begin to look like the shoes they wear. And the more your feet look like the shoes you wear, the more foot problems you have and the more money the podiatrists make off you. And most any podiatrist will confirm this. You know, they, they don't see people with uh, square shaped feet. They see people with, uh, the, with feet that look like shoes. So there's all this, you know, interesting, you know, data out there. And, um, you know, my take was like, well, the whole goal goal of everything we're doing with Ultra is to make the most injury prevention preventative shoes ever and and Ultra started out um, as the first name we had was Altera and Altera was this uh, you know root word that means to mend or fix that which is broken um, which I, I thought was perfect because we had um, you know once we had tested these shoes we pitched it all to the big shoe companies and they were kind of like well you know either don't care or you know we can't do that because it doesn't fit our marketing platform or you know you might be right but you know if we were to do that we'd basically admit that everything we've done for the last 30 or 40 years is wrong so we're not willing to go there and i was like you don't understand like tons of people are running more injury free like right now because of this which means they're running more miles which means they're buying more shoes which is good for everybody it's good for them it's good for the running store. It's good for the shoe company. <laughs> you know, this <laughs> is like a win-win-win situation, you know? <laughs> and I was just so frustrated that um, the major shoe companies had like really not a big vested interest in doing what was right for the customer, but only what was right for their marketing platform and for their bottom line. And I just thought that was so broken. And so between, you know, a shoe industry that I as a running store manager felt was kind of broken and, and completely non-scientifically based. And the whole idea behind everything we were doing, modifying shoes as far as, you know, making them bigger and skipping the laces at the bottom and getting people's toes to spread out and taking the heel out um, or building up the forefoot so that the shoe was level and people could run better. The whole idea was to fix broken people. That was, you know, most people come into a running store to buy shoes because something hurts. And that was something that I, you know, was passionate about fixing people. If people are going to come into my store, I wanted to be able to fix them as well as possible and and do it in a manner that had some science behind it and, and we knew could work. And so, um, so this this word Altera was where we started. Sounds like um, your shoes and the um, you, you started this uh, shoe uh, helping people. Most of them sound like a roadrunners, um, but most of the ultra shoes that I have seen around here in Alabama, um, our southeast, is they're trail runners. So, mm. so, <laughs> so I didn't even know that you guys make a uh, road shoes till I got my my own. So. Are you more focused on road, trail, or both? Um, I'd say we're more focused on road. Um, we we are, I believe, uh, the latest numbers. I believe we're, as of right now, the number one trail running shoe in the nation, um, brand wise. So obviously, we're doing very well at trail. Um, but we did, you know, we started, uh, it, and and part of that is that me and the other founders were um were trail runners you know we, we run road as well but um you know a lot of our passion lies in trail so i think that's uh you know some of it but our focus is definitely more on the road we sell you know we sell a lot um we, we make a lot more road shoes so uh you know just a, a wider variety of road shoes across the board um and there are certain pockets of the country and uh it sounds like alabama may be one of them where um we do you know 
extremely well in trail and and for whatever reason they they haven't realized that uh you know we make even more road shoes than we do trail and, and they're really really good too <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'm i'm just around the trail running people that wear the ultra shoes and that and i'm not around the road running friends so it could be that um i go to your website and look at so many different varieties of shoes and road trail i mean you know just to in a, sometimes it's confusing for us now but you know even if we just only focus on ultra that's uh that's so many how do you how do you how do you think uh, people should select the shoes uh if we want to just go online and buy it i know it's best to go to the store but but if you don't have they don't have access to a local store um what is the what kind of suggestion do you make to get a shoes like yours yeah yeah no i agree you definitely you know if, if at all possible you want to go into a, a run specialty store outdoor specialty store and, and put some shoes on your feet because at the end of the day comfort is what matters um with that said um right now i'm developing a um shoe finder tool uh, a running shoe finder tool for our website that should go live in the next uh, couple of weeks and uh the focus is really trying to give people more of a scientific based approach on how to build or how to select a shoe and so if you look at the way we lay our shoes out um, we lay them out basically for people with strong feet or for people with weak feet or structural deformities so your strong feeted people are going to be your your neutral runners and which is the vast bulk of um, people we see you know 83% of people should buy a neutral shoe according to scientific statistics Um, and then uh, we also make a, a few shoes that we call dynamic support shoes so shoes that don't uh, force your foot outward, but um, when you fatigue, um, there's some proprioceptive um, guidance there and other things that remind your foot uh, not to, you know, collapse too far one way or the other. And so you can you can wear those shoes as a neutral runner as well, which is really cool. Uh, but they work great for people that may have weaker feet um, or um, you know have some uh, genetic issues that cause their feet to collapse in a lot or whatever. So with that said, uh, then we we structure those by um, cushion level. So we go from light to moderate to high to max um, for four different levels of cushioning. And what we you know try to do from a shoes shoe selection side and you know my advice to anybody out there listening is you know pick uh, based on what your needs are. And what we know scientifically is that cushioning doesn't protect your joints. Um, no, um, no cushioning technology has ever been shown to help your joints. In fact, uh, basically every study ever done on cushioning shows that uh, cushioning actually magnifies um, impact forces, joint torque, shear forces, all these things higher up the kinetic chain. So um, cushioning works where cushioning is. So a boxing glove protects your hands and your wrist, but you know boxers overwhelmingly retire with shoulder injuries. The cushioning of the box glove, you know, cannot and does not protect the shoulder. Uh, likewise, with a running shoe, you can get a big, thick, cushy running shoe, and that's going to uh, keep the, you know, the blow off your feet, basically, um, and reduce impact, you know, for your foot and lower leg. But higher up the kinetic chain, knees, uh, hips, uh, low back, etc., are going to see more forces in a higher cushion shoe. And then, of course, the the kicker in all of this is running technique, and a shoe with the lower heel to toe drop is um, going to encourage a lower impact landing which is going to be easier on the joint so we kind of have to play this uh you know um game of of helping people to select uh and find a happy medium for what their needs are so for example if somebody had uh foot problems 
uh, if they're suffering from an aroma, um, we'd want to put them in a higher cushion shoe uh, because cushioning, again, cushioning works where cushioning is. And yet, if they had a, um, you know, more of a knee problem, which is more of a joint issue, then, um, you know, we'd go a couple directions. One, obviously, get them in a, a shoe with less heel to toe drop because that's going to help them run with a lower impact running technique, which is going to help the joints. All of our shoes are zero drops. So that one's kind of uh, kind of a given for us Two, go with less cushioning because less cushioning will, um, in a way, um, you know, give feedback to the body that helps the body run with a lower impact technique as well and is proven to reduce forces on the joints. And um, or three, we teach them technique. You know, we, we uh, teach people to focus on, you know, the four points of, of good, low impact, save your knees running technique, as I like to say it, which is, uh, again, proud posture, compact arms, uh, landing under a bent knee and, and quick steps. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of how it goes. And, and you know, to really simply say it, uh, if you have foot problems, go with a more cushioned shoe. If you have joint problems, uh, work on your running technique, run on uneven surfaces and, and probably tend toward either a lower cushion shoe or a shoe that, uh, you know, doesn't have a built up heel. So that'll be kind of this, the scientific based, uh, approach to shoe selection right there. But definitely, um, I always get confused, uh, looking at shoes anytime I go look at it, even if I go to store and I don't know what I want. So my needs mm-hmm. are different from the different time and different races and different events and different terrains right. that I'm running. So usually it's difficult for me to understand. And, and I, I have to try some shoes and I said, okay, this worked and this didn't work, you know? So that's a, that's what, how I would look at that's. That, that's a from your perspective it's pretty pretty good to listen to that so because you are on the other side of making the shoes so talking about that uh, making the shoes how far ahead do you look uh you know i've been running uh, uh continuously since like 10 years now um mm-hmm. this is my 10th year and the shoe uh, making has changed considerably mm-hmm. uh from the time that i started um uh, from the world from um, going from minimalist to then the the maximalist moment, and then uh, I don't know where the swing is now. Uh, how <laughs> and you know we kind of in between at this stage looks like. How far ahead do you look at uh, the trend and the shoe and shoe making and the customer customer who's buying those? Um, you know it's funny because everybody always asks me about trends, and I kind of like I don't do trends really. You know, I mean maybe a little bit with materials or 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 looks uh, to a degree, but really like our focus is on like you know following whatever the science happens to be, even if it's the opposite of the trends. So you know, for example, when when uh, we first launched, our first shoes were a traditionally cushioned zero drop foot shaped shoe, the the Ultra Instinct, and right after this happened, minimalism became really popular. And basically, everybody looked at our first shoes and, and we're like, so what's with the minimalist shoes with cushioning? <laughs> you know, it was like kind of the opposite of the trend, right? And and then, of course, um, then we, we built some, uh, you know, what you might call maximal shoes called the Olympus before Hoka ever really became big. Um, and so people are like, why is Ultra making shoes with so much cushioning? And it's like, well, you know, again, if you look at the science, uh, cushioning protects feet. And we're looking at people running 100 mile races. They're out on their feet for 
you know, sometimes 36 to 48 hours and their feet are what fatigues. Um, and we can also pull a little stress off the muscles there too. So, um, so we really built these shoes specifically for, um, you know, a, a good number of our customer base that were running really, really long distances and their, their feet would give out. And so for us, it was never about chasing a trend. And then of course, you know, maximalism, you know, um, kind of took off after that. And, and, but for the most part, we've always kind of stayed in this, this middle ground, which we feel is, is kind of the scientific happy medium, which is enough cushioning to be able to allow your average person to not, um, get their feet beat up, but not so much that we interfere with, um, with their running technique because, uh, you know, too much cushioning, especially building up the heel is, is always going to, um, you know, interfere with people's ability to run in a way that their body wants to, or, or is built to, and is created to. And so, um, when it comes to trends, uh, you know, we tend to just, we tend to just do our own thing. Um, I don't like trend chasing per se. Um, but with that said, you know, um, you know, you kind of ask about how far out we're looking. We just launched a shoe called the, uh, Torin IQ, which is similar to, you know, it's the, basically the Torin shoe you have. Um, but it has, um, uh, multiple sensors in both shoes that uh, sense uh, your impact rate, your uh, landing zone, whether you're overstriding or too far up on your toes or, or in the in the sweet spot between a light heel strike and a light forefoot strike. Um, and then your cadence and your ground contact time. And it measures that stuff all left to right as well. So you can see if you're in balance or out of balance, be able to, you know, see if you might be predisposed to have an injury or it can usually tell if you recently rolled your ankle because you'll be favoring it. it. It'll show that. Um, and then what the shoe does is it it senses what you're doing. And if, if you're starting to slip or you're doing something wrong, it'll actually say like, for example, hey, it looks like you're overstriding. Um, let's uh, have you get your elbows back behind your hips to help correct this. And so it'll give you a tip and then it'll let you work on that tip for um, about 10 minutes. And then if you're still doing the same thing, it'll it'll pop in another tip. You can actually select how often you get these tips. But, um, but it's basically like taking your running coach with you on your run. Um, and as long as you're doing great, your coach isn't really going to you know tell you much. But as soon as you start to slip or start to fatigue or get tired um, and start to, you know, have some bad habits developing, then this coach in your shoe, you know, comes up and says, hey, it looks like you're slipping. Here's what you need to do to fix it. So um, it's really cool technology. And we first um, we first started on this shoe uh, over five years ago. So I think uh, five and a half years from inception to um, release now. And typically we're two to three years out on on shoes so there's stuff i'm working on right now that won't see the light of the day for for three years it'll take us that long to to get it out definitely the the shoes that you're talking about sound like a more smart shoes or you know the smart yeah. technology yep, <laughs> yeah exactly uh, yeah this is the first time i have heard about it so that's that's pretty cool golden um as, as i listened to you uh and from the from the beginning it sounded like uh the shoes that you build is more scientific um scientific uh, the way you do it uh, how does your research scientific research i think how, how does that work for you from the running shoes do you get information from a lot of people and um, put that in the data analyze it uh, i know you're heavily still heavily involved making the shoes correct mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um so you know we look at a number of factors and um you know you'd like to take the the published um science uh, basically the research that's being done in universities around the world and and look at you know whether it's a good study or a bad study and then you know try to take a composite of 
all of them if possible. And then look at it in practical terms too. So I like to test things out in, in a running store whenever possible. We, we get a theory and, and we go test it in a running store. And, and, and most of the stuff we we um, do at Ultra had, had already really been tested for years and years and years before we came out with the shoes. Um, but there's a lot of uh, areas in um, running stores where the science um, that we have available today and the actual marketing behind the shoes are just worlds apart. And this is what we're really trying to rectify with with the way we build shoes. So, for example, we, we already talked about cushioning and all the old, you know, um, and even the current marketing is, you know, our whatever technology in the heel will save your knees. And that's just complete scientific garbage. Um, you know, cushioning has never been shown to save people's knees in any way, shape or form. Um, running shoes and, you know, shoe technology have never been shown to prevent injuries. And so, you know, we try to apply cushion where it should be applied uh, and in the way it should be applied and explain to people, you know, how it works and how it can help, which is, you know, different than what else is out there. Another one that's a big one is pronation. You know, I, I still think a, a, not all running stores, but a good chunk of them you walk into today, they'll they'll analyze your pronation and then give you a shoe based on that. And the problem with that is there's been 204 studies done on pronation the last 25 years, and uh, only two of them show any link to injury whatsoever. Uh, one, a weak link to shin splints, and, and one, a weak link to anterior knee pain. Um, 202 of the 204 show no link whatsoever. Um, so, pronation doesn't cause injuries um, and uh, the the other crazy thing is that no stability shoe, including the Brooks Beast, has been shown to make more than a one percent change in in pronation. So, um, which uh, for someone you know a person running that's 0.7 millimeter, that's like a couple pieces of paper stacked together. Um, the foot still does the same thing inside the shoe. The shoe just makes it look like the foot's pronating less. And, and so you know you do this treadmill analysis and oh it looks like it fixed it. Well you know every gait lab in the country will tell you like that puts bone markers on feet. It didn't fix anything. It just made it look like it fixed something. Yeah, you know? definitely. I, I can I can agree on that point really, because I've been wearing shoes and the way I pronate in every shoe style I have ran ever, ever since, except trail running shoes, they pronate very similarly for my road running shoes. So yeah, I mean, there's this whole paradigm of um, you know we watch people run, we see how much they pronate, and then we give them a shoe that matches their pronation, and it's it's complete bogus science. You know, the, the best data we have out there shows that, you know, only 17% of people should be running in stability shoes. And yet, um, and yet, you know, running shoe stores are selling almost half of their shoes are stability shoes. So they're being vastly overprescribed. And the really interesting data point there too, is that of those 17% that, you know, seem to be less injured in a stability shoe, only half of those people actually quote unquote overpronate. Um, and so, you know, right along this vein is, as we look at things scientifically, people are told like to select shoes based on arch height, which is also totally bogus. Um, a lot of people are told, oh, you have flat feet, you're ruined. We need to fix you. We need to give you special shoes, special inserts. Well, most of the best runners in the world have flat feet. You're in pretty dang good company. You know, it's really not about how high your arch is as much as it is about how strong your arch is. Um, and you can do simple foot strengthening exercises and make a big, big difference. Um, and, you know, selecting a shoe based on arch height just has no scientific backing. So there's another one um, on that side. And then as we go into surfaces, you know, people think, oh, I should run on the sidewalk instead of, or on the road instead of the sidewalk, it's softer. Well, they're both crushed rocks. They're both really, really hard. And your body moderates for impact, especially if you land properly. Um, it, there's no science showing there's any difference whatsoever. Um, what you should be doing is looking for uneven ground because humans were uh, 
created to move over uneven ground and our muscle structure is set up that way and when we go run on flat surfaces all the time um, then we develop muscle imbalances that cause the vast majority of running injuries again you know a lot of the marketing is oh running injuries are caused by impact well not true you know um, a lot of researchers really believe that most running injuries are actually caused by muscle imbalances and so do things that make your hips move you know if you can step in a pothole do it if you run on the dips in the sidewalk great you know um, put your foot up on the curb run on the grass you know find dirt path next to the road you're running on anything that will make your hips move back and forth and involve your glutes more is going to be better trail running obviously is great and we did some really uh, fun research in college where we found that uh, if people could run one out of three miles on uneven ground, whether that be cobblestones or trail or grass or whatever, uh, it had a significant protective effect for injury. So people would be, you know, they were statistically significantly less injured uh, if they could just do a third of their running on off-road surfaces. So that, you know, that's another one. And then the last one we really get into is, is foot problems. You know, people think, oh, I should get a shoe to fix my foot problems. And really, you know, 99% of modern footwear is actually the the problem that causes 99% of all chronic foot conditions. So if, uh, you know, for example, people think, uh, I, I got this bunion, um, I got it from my mom. Well, yes and no. You are predisposed to it from your mother, perhaps, but it has to be set off by actually wearing a shoe that's shaped like a bunion, which again is 99% <laughs> of all shoes. Because when we go to populations of people that don't wear shoes, we don't see bunions. We don't see neuromas. We don't see metatarsalgia. We don't see what we used to call plantar fasciitis, what we now call plantar fasciosis. Um, you know, all these chronic foot conditions are literally set off by our shoes and caused by our shoes. So, um, you know, that's another thing that people really need to look at is getting your foot back into its natural position. Every morning you wake up, you get out of bed, your feet sit flat on the ground with your toes spread and relaxed. Your shoe shouldn't change that in any way, shape or form. But 98% of all shoes, raise your heel, push up on your arch, elevate your toes a bit into the air and, and crowd your toes together. And our bodies are wonderfully adaptable things. So we don't even think about it. You know, it's one of those things most of us have never thought about and don't even notice. But, you know, put your your foot down um, and spread your toes out and then put your shoe next to it and, and you think, whoa, those are two really different shapes. I <laughs> never really thought about that before. And I get into these arguments with uh, magazine editors all the time. They call and they're like, okay, so you know, give me the quick rundown of what your shoes are about. And I'm like, well, they're foot shaped. <laughs> you know? And they're like, well, of course they're foot shaped. They're shoes. I'm like, no, they're foot shaped. Like they're actually shaped like feet. And you know, these people are like, they're shoes. And I'm like, no, take your shoe off right now and put your foot next to your, to your shoe. And uh, usually these editors are in New York wearing, you know, really tight fashion shoes that are super pointy and and there's almost like an audible gasp over the phone like oh <laughs> my gosh i never thought about that it never occurred to me that shoes are not shaped like feet you know and so we get into having that discussion and i talk about you know like i said earlier they're not wide they're foot shaped um and so there's all this stuff um, that I think is really helpful uh, as a runner to understand really kind of the scientific side of things rather than just maybe the propaganda that is, um, you know, given to us in magazine ads and, and running stores. So Definitely. And uh, you have done a lot of research on that and, and bring it to in the light. And even in this podcast, we talked a lot. Um, we talked a lot about uh, running, running shoes, running ultra shoes, but we never uh, talked about how did you... Uh, went from uh, being a toaster oven at at the at the at your house in the kitchen to all the way to this uh, this uh, multi-millionaire multi-billion big company that sells um, sells shoes and <laughs> around the world now. Um, and how does that come about? Um, 
Well, it uh, basically after we failed to get any of the big running shoes uh, companies or uh, to pick it up, my my cousin Jeremy Howlett, he uh, he was like, we have to do this, and I'd been thinking about it for about a year, you know, and I thought if if none of the big shoe companies do this, I'm going to have to do this, but it's like suicide. Nobody's ever broken in, you know, to the to the big running shoe companies before, and, and we've had the same seven running shoe companies since the beginning of time, basically. Um, and uh, but he's like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do everything else. You just build the shoes. I'm like, okay, whatever, man. <laughs> but he finds this guy that finds these guys, um, and these guys are like the rock stars of of shoe development. We're talking like everybody who's building shoes at Nike was taught how to do so by one of these guys. Uh, we also. Uh, had the the last maker at Nike and the last is the form that shoes are built around and the head of the kitchen at Nike, which is their advanced concepts team. Um, and then a VP of development from Adidas and the head of CAD at Adidas, the, the first guy to ever do, um, you know, c- computer animation, 3d, you know, shoe design basically. And, um, these guys called it, called, called me up. And my first thought was like, they're like, yeah, we, you know, we were with Nike and Adidas. And I'm like, oh, no, we're finally getting sued. You know, because like, <laughs> I thought like shoe companies are going to hate that we're cutting their shoes up and, and reselling them. Right. Um, and they're like, no, we, we actually left those companies. We formed our own rapid prototyping group. Um, we've known this research for 15 years, like it, at Nike and Adidas independently for 15 years, we have known that shoes were supposed to be built this way. Um, and we're just so frustrated with not being able to build shoes that follow the science that we left and we want to, we want to do it ourselves. Um, but, uh, we, we don't know anything about the running specialty industry and we don't have a good marketing story. We're just like old guys that know how to build shoes. And I'm like, so why are you calling me? <laughs> and they're like, cause you have a great marketing story. And the you know, kind of light bulb goes on. It's like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> so we, we got together with these guys and, and kind of talked it over and I, I, presented a lot of you know the information and research i had done and how we needed to do things and and so the first thing is building a last so we sit down with these guys and and we decide we're going for it and they're like okay well we need to get the shape of the shoes and you know we we had this discussion of like okay if the shoe is truly going to prevent foot problems and allow the foot to do what it's supposed to to you know really spread out on impact and uh, stabilize and be able to push off the ground powerfully is there any way to do it without making it look just like a foot and you know the consensus was no like if 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 the shoe's gonna act like a foot it's got to look like a foot basically and so um what we decided is we need to take people who had no foot problems um and had really healthy feet and and wearing socks because most people wear socks and shoes trace their feet and so we literally got the shape of the shoes by um, putting people's feet down on a piece of paper and tracing their feet and we took a composite of these tracings and that's how um we got the the foot-shaped toe box and, and the foot-shaped design of the shoes, um, which is like incredibly um, different than everything else out there. And at the same time, like ridiculously simplistic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, just one of those things like people are like, well, how do you choose these shapes? I'm like, oh, we, we trace feet. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like not super complicated. This is not rocket science. Um, and then same thing goes for like helping to people run with better technique there. There was no way to do it without making the shoe uh, level and balanced from heel to forefoot. So zero drop was an absolute essential um, and foot shape was, was an absolute essential. And so we trace feet and we, we built lasts and, um, you know, we got the first prototype and it was like, holy crap those look weird (laughs) you know and everybody got got real uh you know tense and um you know these guys that had called me up ended up not um you know putting their life savings in so we we had to go find other money elsewhere and and you know long story 
short, we kind of charged forward. Next thing I knew, we had we had shoes on the way, and and uh, you know had some pre-orders, and and we're sitting at outdoor retailer show or the running event, and we're we're a million dollars in debt. So <laughs> that's kind of you know a quick version of how it all came together. Um, and you know, luckily we had. Uh, just even at our first show, the first running event we went to, we had 25 running stores uh, pre-order uh, shoes and, and come on board before we'd sold a single pair. Um, and that really helped, uh, you know, kind of get us off the ground, which is cool. That's a pretty cool story. Part of this thing, um, what is the most difficult thing that you had to face to build a company like what you have built? Um, most difficult thing. Holy crap. I've been to hell and back 50 times. I just try and remember which one was the most painful. <laughs> um, I think in a lot of ways, like, um, in the early years, like before we ever sold shoes, I think the most difficult thing in some ways was, was raising money. Um, on the flip side, uh, the most difficult thing about building the shoes is everything we did flew in the face of convention at the factory level, um, and at the, the shoe design and development level. So when we came in, um, you know, the, the traditional, you know, mold, like I was saying earlier, is, you know, whatever cushioning you spec in the forefoot, they, they just basically double it for the heel. And all lasts or the forms that the shoes are built around um, have a built-in heel um, built into the last. And so we had to build all these lasts from the ground up because there was no such thing as a zero drop um, athletic shoe last. It just didn't exist. Um, likewise, there was no such thing as a foot shaped um, shoe last. And so instead of being able to pick a last off the shelf, which is what 99% of all um, you know people do when they, they build shoes is they go find a last that, that they like that looks good and they, they select it and they, they, they use it to build shoes. We had to build these lasts from the ground up. Mm. And then when we took them to the factory, they were like, these aren't for athletic shoes. And we're like, yeah, they are. They're like, well, they don't look anything like athletic shoes. We're like, yeah, we know. Um, and then like the way they grade things is they actually push the toes up um, as the sizes get bigger and they push the heel up as the sizes get bigger. And we had to actually manually mill every last because the software um, is designed to do that. It's designed to grade, you know, the heel higher and higher and higher as the sizes get bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> And um, same thing with the toes, put it, raising the toes more off the ground. And so we had to go in and the software wouldn't even allow us to, you know, mass produce the last basically. So we had to we had to go in and do these lasts all by hand and they had to be hand milled, which was crazy. Um, so there's a lot of things like that where the factory just had never done it before. Um, you know, doing shoes without heel elevation just hadn't been done before. Doing shoes that were shaped like feet um, for athletic purposes just hadn't been done before. And I feel like a lot of the things we do and initially did with the first shoes were right along those lines where, um, you know, the the factory just is like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, we, we don't know how to do this. This is not the way we do things. This is not how Nikes are built. Um, you know, and no that really probably has been the most difficult thing and, and is a continual thing. You know, every time we work with a new person, um, they have to be trained on how ultra does things different than everybody else because everybody else does things a very certain, you know, a particular way. Um, and so as soon as a new person comes on to, you know, help build our shoes, they basically have to be trained on how we just do everything, everything different. And all the time, you know, we still catch them kind of slipping back into old habits and we have to, you know, pull them back into, you know, our standards. So it's really interesting. Definitely. Quickly, how hard it was for you to convince runners like us to try your shoes or buy into your the concept that, that you had in front at the, at the beginning? 
<laughs> it's still really hard. <laughs> um, I think, you know, first off, runners are generally creatures of habit. Um, so getting them to try something drastically different is uh, always challenging. I'll tell you what, though, it's really easy when people get hurt um, and they, they haven't been able to find a solution in the traditional ways. Uh, that's how, you know, I think most people that ended up working for us uh, came in came aboard for that reason. And I think a lot of people, I kind of joke that our company is built on word of mouth from one previously injured runner to another. <laughs> you know, they, they get a pair of our shoes, they learn to run with better technique, they understand the science better, they fix their injuries or, or get their injuries feeling better, and then they tell their friends. Um, and Or it's just more comfortable, you know, uh, because there's definitely a big uh, you know, looks thing to overcome. People are used to seeing shoes being pointy and torpedo shaped. And when they see a foot shaped shoe at first, it looks friggin' weird. <laughs> and, you know, we acknowledge that. And it's interesting because it's just so much as what you're used to seeing. For me, as someone who spends all day around people with foot shaped shoes, when I go out into public, it looks like y'all are wearing elf shoes. <laughs> you know, I just see like pointy turned up toes and, you know, it, it looks like everyone has elf shoes. So, so much of it is just perspective. And I think what happens is people see them once, they look really weird. They see them a second time, they look sort of weird. And by the time they see it the third time, they're like, okay, that's not so bad, you know. And that really is why word of mouth is just so important to us. So, to all of our fans out there and, and people wearing ultra listening, like, I feel like this brand is built on your backs. You know, it's, it's, it's you guys saying to your friends, hey, I know this looks weird, but you got to try it. That personal recommendation is almost necessary where for a lot of other brands, they can show a flashy shoe um, in a magazine or on a TV ad and, and it's a fairly easy sell. Um, for us, it's, it's so different that we need word of mouth. We need, you know, we need that personal recommendation. So it's definitely definitely harder to answer your question directly, I guess. <laughs> definitely. Golden, we talked a lot about shoes um, on, and uh, making shoes. Uh, tell us about what inspires you to do what you do, continuously do, day in and day out, spend a lot of time running, running, running related stuff. Tell us what inspires you. Um, probably two things. Um, pretty much everywhere I go, I have somebody come up to me, uh, if not multiple somebodies, and say, you know, either A, your shoes changed my life, or B, your shoes made it so I could run, or C, your shoes made it so I could run again, or D, like, your shoes fix this persistent running injury I've had my whole life. Um, you know, and I remind them, it's like, well, the shoes are part of it. And then like the education and the, you know, you did the work to teach yourself how to run better and you did the work to understand the science better and apply it. Um, so, but that, that certainly fuels me. Um, and you know, that, that also inspires me to want to do better and to, you know, continue to refine and tweak and, and make things better in every way possible. And, you know, the second thing is just, you know, going out for a run. You know, I go out, I'm, most days I'm testing something. Um, so I'm out in some prototype shoe of ours. And so I not only get to be out there running and, you know, doing what all of our customers do, um, but I get to do it while wearing a pair of shoes that I'm in the process of building and, and thinking through like, okay, if I was this person in this situation, what about this shoe needs to be better? Or what do I need to change with it? And then I can go back to the design and development team and say, you know, these are the, the things we need to adjust and whatnot. So I think those are the two things that kind of inspire me and, and uh, help keep me going. Definitely. I think we can talk forever about running, running shoes. We have so much <laughs> question. But, uh, but we have to conclude our interview before we conclude our interview. I just want you to give a word of advice to people out there listening to us. Um, you have taken simple act of running um, from young age uh, to beyond running. Give a word of advice to people to 
um, take adventure of running beyond running and uh, try to find that niche or try to find that uh, passion they could find beyond running. You know, my running advice is usually pretty consistent. First off, um, go get running lessons on technique. Go take a, a running technique class and learn how to protect your body when you run. Um, and then along with that, find uneven surfaces. Use your eyes to find uneven surfaces. Um, and then, like, just realize you're in it for the long run and don't overtrain. And if we can get people to do those three things, learn how to protect their bodies, run on surfaces that their body was, you know, built, created, evolved, whatever, to run on, and then... Um, you know, throttle things back and, and not run too hard all the time. Uh, learn that you can get faster by running slower, you know, learn about math training, MAF, um, and some of this stuff. Um, you know, then you're going to be a, a healthier runner for a lifetime, you know, and you're not going to burn out and you're not going to get injured um, as much. And, and I think to me, that's huge. And then, um, you know, beyond running, I think for me, it's just follow your passion. Um, and I think our world is so selfish. Um, you know, people are always getting offended by things and they're always angry at every, everybody. And, um, you know, realize that things are what they are and, and we need to control the sphere that, that we're in and, and we need to be passionate, um, without being, without being selfish. Um, so follow your heart and at the same time, like really look out for others and, um, you know, follow some sort of belief system that, that allows you to, uh, keep a focus on not being selfish and, and thinking of other people and serving others. Because I think at the end of the day, doing things that benefit others are, is truly the thing that makes us happy. It's the thing that makes us sleep well at night. And I love being able to, uh, have a job where I get to work at doing something that hopefully, you know, if I do it right, benefits other people and, and changes their lives positively. Um, and, you know, outside of work, that's something I try to follow as well. You know, um, you know, I try and find ways to help and serve other people because I think, uh, you know, I strongly believe that as we do that, that's that's what makes us happy, truly happy inside. Definitely, Golden. It has been a great pleasure to talk to you. Um, hopefully, I will see you at Boston uh, pretty soon. Um, I'm, and I will uh, follow a journey along the way. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, check out, uh, Altra at altrafootwear.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, Twitter. We're pretty good at responding. And then, um, if you're interested in more deep dive, um, stuff or injuries or anything like that, you can go to my website, which is just golden dash or hyphen harper.com. So golden dash harper.com, um, or just Google my name. Usually I think I'm the only one out there. Um, <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of good info there, including a detailed written story of, of how Altra got started started to kind of fill in some of the details we might might not have got to um and uh contact form as well if if uh, you want to reach out to me so thank you so much for having me on it's been a blast um and uh hope to hear from everybody out there thank you thank you thanks for listening to another episode of m runs podcast please subscribe to m runs podcast channel voice of runners also follow mruns.com's social media handle marathon runs on twitter facebook and instagram for recent updates photos and more